donuts. I was like, oh, well, you know, there's cupcakes. I don't know about donuts. Anyway, hey, uh, <laughs> it's like this, like, oh, my gosh. It's always important. We're doing, um, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to do three-part series on this. And uh, I'm going to show you, the, hopefully, show you the relevance of all of this. The kingdom, say this with me, the kingdom of God, is not in eating and drinking, but it is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about these three things the next few weeks. We're going to talk about righteousness, peace, and joy. And the reason that we're going to talk about them is because our job is to bring forth the kingdom of God. And the Bible is telling us that the kingdom of God does not come through natural means. In other words, eating and drinking, that's not the kingdom of God. Right, The kingdom of God is brought forth through righteousness, peace, and joy. So we're going to talk about righteousness today. Next week we're going to talk about peace and we're going to talk about joy. And you're going to see the interconnection of all of this and how this is supposed to work. And so we want to first understand what kingdom is. We have to define this word kingdom. And I love to tell this to people because it's just truth. When the, word, when the Bible uses the word gospel, the number one use of the word gospel is always gospel of the kingdom. So when the scripture is referencing gospel, which is the good news, the message, it's referencing the message of the kingdom. And so we not just have to understand the message, we have to understand the message of the kingdom. And so there's, some, there's so, so much more there. The second most common reference is the gospel of Christ. Okay, so we have two common references. Gospel's in there too. But number one is gospel of the kingdom. And then a common reference is gospel of Christ, which means anointed. The good news of the anointing. The good news of the anointed one. The good news of the powered one. It's not even the gospel of the Savior or the gospel of salvation. And I'm not de-emphasizing that by any means. What I'm simply trying to do is elevate the concept of the gospel and not diminish it. Because the gospel is so much more than us just coming to Christ. There's a whole world out there beyond just coming to Jesus. And so what the kingdom is, if you want to divide it into two words, it means king's dominion. And so dominion is where we get the word dominate. It's where we get the word domain, right? So if we're, you, any of you guys are internet people, you probably have a domain name. If you have a blog, that's the domain. That's the place where you operate. And so what the kingdom is, is the domain in which the king operates, we are called to bring forth the kingdom, the king's domain, into the earth. We're called to bring the king's operation into our world, on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the design. One of the other things that's important is not just to understand what kingdom means, gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the good news, of the rule and the reign of God coming into the earth, into the people, of, into, into humans, and then into and through the humans as that we go forth and create. The second thing we got to understand, and this is very important, if you do not understand how you were designed, you will not operate according to your design. And you're going to wonder why everything is dysfunction. And so for the Christian, for the human being in general, you have to understand how you were made. It's kind of like the concept of like, what we do is we, if we don't understand how we're made, if we don't understand how we operate, and if we, if we operate according to how we're made, there's harmony. Can we agree? Right? If you operate your car in, in accordance with how it's made, there's harmony. If you decide to operate your, core, your car in a way that's not in its, in its design, there's no harmony, right? Kind of like, okay, it runs on gas. Well, I think it should run on diesel, right? And then we wonder, why isn't it car running? I think it should run on diesel. Well, it's not designed to run on diesel. It's designed to run on petroleum, petrol. 
That's what it's designed to run on. And so it's the same way for us, just created human beings. We are created in a specific fashion, and we are created for a specific purpose. And our, the creator created us this way, and he created us for life and health and good. And if we operate outside of our intended design, there often is, or almost always is, and I'll go even further, there always is destruction. Right? So we understand this? And as a Christian, it's the same thing. We have to understand how we're created. Number one, one of the ways that we're created is we're created to rule. The Bible says this, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Let us, let them have dominion. So here we have the deity, we have our Father, the Father, Son, and Spirit, let us, the plural God, Elohim, the Godhead, let us make man in our image. And then it says, let them have what? Have dominion, have rulership. So we are created in the image and likeness of God to do what? Have dominion. What dominion do we operate from? Our own? No, the king's dominion. So we are created to operate in accordance with our creator in the dominion of his rulership or his kingship. That's how we're designed. And he says, let, us have, let them have authority over the beasts of the field, the, the, the birds, the fish, everything. What it's, what it's trying to state there in Genesis is it means, say it with me, all-inclusive. All That's right. Let mankind have an all-inclusive dominion over the earth. So God created man in his image, the male and the female. He created them, man and woman, together. We talked about it last week. That was our intended design. Our intended design. The heavens, even the highest heavens are the Lord's. And the earth he has given to the sons of men. So he has given us the earth. The problem with this is, okay, so let me just distress this. This will be for some of you. I'll give you a theological concept. Theology is a teaching. Theology means the study of God. And so the, the, the study of God or the teachers, the theology within the church or the understanding of God within the church, more often than not, is we, we come from a concept that's pulled out of what's called Reformation theology or what's pulled out of something called Calvinism in particular. Reformed Calvinism, is, this, is, this is really a dominant viewpoint within the church at current. And it means God is sovereign over all. When we say that, we don't necessarily have a problem with that in theory. But when you really play out what that is intended, what, what it really means, we can find that there's a disconnect somewhere along the line. God is sovereign over all. Yes, this is true. And in his sovereignty, he's delegated authority. And that delegated authority is given to man, given to earth, and given particularly to the church. If we understand this from a Christian standpoint, from the created standpoint, it was given to humanity. From the Christian standpoint, it was redeemed through Christ, returned back to man through Christ, so the dominion now lies, in, it lies within the life of the believer. The idea with sovereign overall is the problem is, is that everything is God's will. So if you go to hell, that was God's will. If you go to heaven, that was God's will. And they use a concept called the elect. Well, God elected some to go to heaven and elected some to go to earth or go to hell. Well, how do you know? We don't know. We don't know. No one can know. Well, the problem with that is it, it, it's extraordinarily contradictory to the scripture. And it, the, the Bible tells us this. It is God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So if it's according to the will of God, and man has no play in this, then everybody should be saved. Because God's will is intended that everybody be born again. It is God's will that none perish. That's what it tells us. God so loved the world. God so loved the all-encompassing aspect of all that he created, that he sent his son, that whosoever, it doesn't say the elect, or the ones that he's created to inherit life, should we say? So the idea here is that God, while God is sovereign, he has taken a large percentage of his sovereignty, particularly as it pertains to the earth, and he has committed it to us. What does that mean? It means we have a responsibility. It means we have a partnership. 
And if we have a responsibility and we have a partnership, then it behooves us to understand what that responsibility entails and what our partnership actually looks like. Am I making sense? If this is how it works, then we should understand how it works, right? God is sovereign, but man has a free will. In his sovereignty, he's given you a free will. Here's the options. This is God says, I would that you choose life that you may live. I said before you, life and death, blessing and cursing. That's what he told the children of Israel. Here's your choices. Life, death, blessing, curses. Choose which you will serve. And then the Lord goes, I would that you choose life that you may live. And so you see, he's making a choice that man choose life that they may live. But he doesn't overarch that church choice. He gives that choice to us. And that not only plays out into our eternal fate, if you will, or our eternal destiny, if you will, it plays out to every arena of our life. God has set before in every arena of our life, life and death, blessing and cursing, and we are confronted with choices which way we will go. You can be saved and you're confronted with life and death, blessing and curses. Paul says to the Christian, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. <laughs> you have freedom of choice, but you're also free to inherit the consequences of such choice. It does not alienate you from your identity. It does not alienate you from your destiny or from your calling as a, or your position, but it will alienate you from your destiny. You're free, but not everything's going to produce life. That's the point. And so we have to understand this, that we're created to rule. God is sovereign over righteousness. I love to emphasize this because it's really important in a pluralistic, egotistical, arrogant world where man thinks they can determine what is right and wrong, God has never given up his sovereignty over righteousness. This is important. So while there are met, there's a large portion of things that he's given us the ability to choose into, he's not given us the ability to determine right and wrong. He's not. Or to decide what's right, what's wrong. He's sovereign over righteousness. He alone says what's right. He alone says what's wrong. It doesn't matter if they pass a law. Making it legal doesn't make it holy. Making it legal doesn't make it righteous. Do you understand that? But somewhere along the line, we think that if we pass a law, then we're making it right. That, that's not how heaven operates. While we do that, what we inherit is we inherit the consequences of such choices. We inherit. When we choose against the will of God and we choose against what he has clearly said is right and wrong, we inherit that choice. Nationally, politically, socially, economically, whatever it looks like. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's righteous before the Father. Christians got to understand, well, if it's legal, it must be good. So by law, I can be up here doing bong hits, marrying two guys at the same time in some states. I can be smoking legalized marijuana and mailing to, marrying two people of the same sex. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's righteous before the Father. Do we understand this? I mean, are we Christians or are we not? And if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this from God's perspective. It is not according to the design you understand? We're, that, that is something that it may be according to man's perspective, but it is not created according to the design of God. Just a thought. You should go home and wrestle with that. Roll around on that. And tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's holy. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's righteous. Hmm? Say, what's wrong with marijuana? I'm on marijuana. Marijuana's pushing on me for some reason. Somebody, maybe you guys are thinking about smoking marijuana. I don't know what's going on. But I'm, marijuana's pushing on me. I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about marijuana. The Bible uses the word for drugs as the Greek word pharmakia. It means witchcraft. Oh! 
Drug use in the scripture is the same word as witchcraft. Same word. Pharmakia is where we get the word pharmacy from. The same word pharmakia is used for witchcraft. And what it means is manipulation. It's a manipulation. It's the same word. So I tell people, if you're, you know, you're burning blunts or whatever, you know, well, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. Who knows? Or whatever it is you're doing and you're thinking it's okay, you know, and you say, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, you're going to do it. It's lawful to you, but it's not profitable to you. You need to understand you're partnering with a dark kingdom. You are partnering with the dark kingdom. Just be advised. Just be advised. You say it's legal. Okay. Gotcha. It's not going to produce, it's not going to produce what is right before the Father. There's no blessing on it. I'm just telling you. There's no blessing on it. I didn't say you couldn't do it. Go do it. But there's no blessing on it. No blessing on it. <laughs> Within measure. Bible doesn't forbid drinking. It forbids drunkenness. But it also relates back to our own temperament. So, in other words, if you're intemperate with alcohol, it tells you not to drink at all. You know what I'm saying? So as soon as you, you know, if you're going to have a glass of wine and you've got to drink three bottles of it, you probably shouldn't be drinking because your temperament is not in line. It's the same thing. It's the same. It does the same thing with food. It does the same thing with all of the different things, all things in temperance, all things in measure. But if you can't be temperate with something, you probably need to abstain. That's what it's telling us. You know? So if you, every time you drink, you've got to drink to oblivion, you probably have a problem with alcohol, and you should back up and think about that. Just saying. <laughs> it doesn't forbid drinking, but it does forbid drunkenness. Drunkenness is where we've crossed the line because we go into dispensation. We go into all these different, you know, we, we, don't, we don't know who we make choices. Come on, how many of you ever drank and you made a poor choice out of drinking? Okay, I mean, really bad, and you're like, what did I do? How did I get there? You know what I'm saying? How did I get here? Where's my car? Where's my pants, man? You know what I'm saying? But this is what happens to us. It, it wrecks us. The Bible says we bear wounds without a cause. Who bears wounds without a cause? Those who tarry long at the well. I had a roommate. He couldn't go to sleep until he drank six beers. This is before I got saved. Before I came to Christ. He put six beers in there. He put six beers in there and he'd go, Kevin, don't drink any of my beers. I've got to drink all six before I go to bed. No lie. No lie. And he would tell me stories when we, when we both returned. He was raised in a Christian home, but we were far from where we had known. And when he came to Christ, he used to quote me, these, he'd quote me those verses. Because I wasn't like a big, you know, I wasn't like drink to oblivion kind of guy. But he was. And he would tell me, he would read me those verses. And he would say, who bears wounds without cars? He'd tell me, I'd wake up and I'd be missing a tooth. And I didn't know where I lost the tooth. Yeah. I'd wake up and I'd have bruises and cuts. and Who bears wounds without a cause? Who has bruises on their body for no apparent reason? Who has broken teeth in their mouth and they don't even know why? They that tarry long at the wine. That's what it tells you. You're tarrying long at the wine, you're going to wake up with some missing teeth. You know what I'm saying? You're going to wake up with cuts and bruises and all kinds of crazy things on you because you're tarrying. The Bible talks about swimming in your bed. Your bed is swimming. Who swims on their bed? Same idea. You see the, you see the picture? It's, everything is in moderation. That's what it tells us. And that goes across the board. That's everything. All things in moderation. Honey is sweet to the taste. But only consume what you need lest you be sick. That's another verse. So candy is great. But candy's not to be consumed in large amounts, right? Can we agree with that? Right? Let's have that third hot fudge Sunday. How's that going for you? You know what I'm saying? You're going to do a sugar coma at the, at, the, at the table. It's all things in moderation. 
Do we get this? So we have to learn to balance our Christian liberty with the idea of temperance, right? While we are restrictive on some things and we're just prohibitive, we're completely indulgent on the other end, on, on a lot of categories where we are just, you know, and we need to, we need to understand that there's a temper, temperate model. You know what I mean? And if you, can't, if you can't do that, then you need to moderate yourself. What is lawful for one is not lawful for the other, but don't do it in front of, so in other words, if I'm gonna drink wine, and I'm going to do it in front of a guy or a person that has a problem with wine. The Bible tells me to not do it. You get it? Lest your brother stumble. Bible even says that. I'm not, I don't want to pick on the vegans, but I don't want because I'm going to have the vegans kind of attacking me. But it even tells you if you have a brother who's weak-minded and doesn't eat meat. In other words, they. You know, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. <laughs> well. My vegan friend, I know. So I knew I'm going to get something on that, man. You guys are taking me down the wrong lane, so I'm going to come back to the teaching here in a second. But the point is that when, if, if I'm a vegetarian and I'm eating with, with uh, Luigi, and Luigi just likes steak and eggs, but, and I'm okay with it, then he can eat steak and eggs. But if I'm just like completely offended that how dare you eat steak and eggs in front of me, you know, uh, or I don't believe anybody should eat meat, we should, the whole world should be vegan, then the Bible tells the Christian to take the lower seat. You understand that? So in other words, if I'm, if, you know, I tell you guys the story all the time. When I was in Germany, we were in Germany, and uh, like here in Germany, if, if in America, if we all went out after church and we had a beer that big, we'd all be looking at each other like, what in the world is wrong with us? But we could all go out and have a pot of coffee and nobody would think anything different. When my wife and I were in Germany, we went out with a bunch of Christians that were planning a church. We were part of it. We were helping them get it going. And we go out, and we drink coffee, and they'd be looking at us like, oh, my gosh. Is that your third cup of coffee, Kevin? You got a problem here? Meanwhile, after church, they'd go, let's go to the beer garden. And I'd be like, okay. And I'd be like, I'll have a lemonade. And they'd be behind me, ein mas bitte. And they'd be having one big monster glass of beer. Meanwhile, they're, they're staring at me because I'm drinking three cups of coffee, and I'm staring at them because they got this monster glass of beer. You know what I mean? So my coffee offended them, but from my perspective at the time, that was a bit of like, whoa, to me. You know, how can you guys come out and drink like this monster glass of beer right after church? I mean, seriously? You know, worship leader and a pastor, dun 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 praise you, Jesus. We understand this? Am I making sense or am I just randomly rambling? I'm trying to show you there's a liberty, but there's a temperance. There's liberty within temperance. We have to be temperate, and we have to be able to discern. The Bible says if you judge yourself, you won't be judged. In other words, judge yourself in light of these things. How do I respond in that? Well, I don't do real good in those environments, so I should probably avoid that. Or I don't really do good around that, so I should probably avoid that. That's what it's telling us. We have to learn these things, right? If you can't go to the beach and see a girl in a bikini without going like raging, like crazy, whatever, you probably shouldn't go to the beach. Just a thought. You know what I mean? Just a thought. I had a guy when we were downtown, he goes, uh, goes to me, he's like, Pastor, you got to pray for me. I really have a problem with alcohol. I just really can't stop drinking alcohol. And I said, okay, you know, so we pray for him, whatever. And I gave the guy a ride home one time, and he lived above a liquor store. This is the truth. <laughs> the truth. I'm not lying. I ride him home. I pull up. He's like, oh, right here. And it's like right above, like, Joe's Liquor or something. He goes, and, you got a problem with alcohol, and you live above a liquor store? I'm like, what am I missing here, man? <laughs> Anyway, so we're called to rule and to have dominion. 
Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me. So we're created this way. We lose our dominion. And then Jesus comes and gives it back to us. And so we're restored back unto the dominion that God initially set. We have rulership over the earth. We have rulership in this world. We have a responsibility in this world. This is what we're called to be and to do. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Everybody say, go. So what he's saying is, you're in me, I've got all the authority, now therefore go. I'm the new Adam, so Adam had it, Adam lost it, so therefore you all lost it. I'm the last Adam, I got it back, now you guys are in me, therefore go. And all the authority that I have. Teach them to observe all things as I've commanded you, I'm with you always. When it says make disciples, if you read it in Greek, it says disciple nations. That's what it says. Literally, go and disciple nations. Don't just disciple people or people groups. Disciple the entire culture. That really expands the broad view of the mission of the church, doesn't it? That takes it to a whole other level. That we're not just to disciple people. We're to disciple a culture. We're to disciple the cities. We're to disciple nations. How do we do that? Isn't that the question? What we fail to do is we fail to understand. I told this first service. I said, the way the Lord works is he throws something on the ground and he sees if anybody will respond to it. That's what he does. And what the common response of human beings is we never ask a question. We never even ask. We just go, oh, yes, yes, absolutely, yes, right. Yeah. He does it all the time. When he says go and disciple nations, what's the question? How do we do that? What does that mean? That's what he wants you to ask. In partnership, in presence, it's always an entered exchange. Same thing, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Do you know what he wanted the people to ask? What the heck does that mean? If you put yourself in that position, what he was saying, he was, he was saying something to provoke a response. He wanted a response. He wanted them to be confused. If you want to be confused, go be confused. If you want to be mad, go be mad. If you want to think I'm crazy because of what I just said, go think I'm crazy. But if you want to ask me, I'll tell you. That's how it works. And so what happens as Christians is God so often throws statements and puts concepts on the ground and he wants to know, do you care? He doesn't cast pearls before swine. He says, do you care? Are you gonna, I'm putting a pearl down. Are you going to trample it? Are you going to walk right over it? Because I'm not putting any more down if you trample it. Are you going to pick it up and go, oh, wow, what's this? Well, that means this. And he gives you another one. And you go, well, what does this mean? That means this. That means this. That means this. This is how it works. This is how revelation comes into the life of the believer. But we hear these statements and we just think, oh yeah, we're supposed to disciple nations. Oh, <laughs> yes, disciple nations. I could go to a pastor's conference, have a room full of pastors and ask the question, does anybody here know what it means to disciple nations? And I guarantee you the concepts that we present out of that statement will be limited at best. Because I dare tell you we haven't thought that through. And we most definitely haven't prayed it through. And we most definitely haven't received from the Father what it is that he actually intended by that statement. We minimize it. We minimize it to the level of only people coming to Christ. Is that not an elevated position? Yes. But the entry into the kingdom, the dominion of the king, is through salvation. There is a whole other elevated life and a whole other elevated experience that he intends the believer to live beyond salvation. We got churches filled with people who are camped at the cross. There's nothing wrong with the cross, but the cross is the gate, man. Into the wonderland. The cat that crosses the rabbit hole into Wonderland. That's what it's all about. We're supposed to enter through Christ into the, way, the realm of wonder. Signs and wonders, if you will. Where are the signs and where's Wonderland? Because we're camped at the cross, man. 
And that's what we teach everybody. Oh, it's just the cross. We just got to come back to the cross. We got to come back to the cross. I'm all for the cross. I'm pro-cross. What I am trying to get across to you and what I'm trying to present through this ministry is there is an elevated experience. It's prophetic even we name this church Elevate because that is exactly where I feel like God is constantly pointing. Next level. Next level. Take them further. Go further. Go further. Go further. I think he's yearning for it. It's what Jesus put his blood down for. He put his blood down for it into the kingdom to go into the kingdom. That's the point. World changers. We're world changers, man. World changers. Amen. Come on. We got one of them here. We got two of them. Yeah. The word disciple, watch this. This is powerful too. It means learner, a disciplined learner, but it means a disciplined learner into a lifestyle. That's what it means. So when it tells us to disciple people and it tells us to disciple nations, what the Bible is not telling us to do is, not, is, is to simply regurgitate knowledge. That's not discipleship. Knowledge is important. We need to get the knowledge. But the knowledge without the lifestyle is empty. We are to call them into a lifestyle. As a Christian, we're called into a lifestyle. We are we, who we are. We live that way. Not according to works and, you know, religious behaviors, but from the heart, by the Spirit. And that's a whole new dimension. That's a whole different world. But discipleship means train, teach, discipline them into a lifestyle. Walk after in this and live this stuff out. That's what it's telling us. Live it out. What do we live out? Well, there again, there's the question, isn't it? What does it look like? How do I live this out? What do you mean by this, Jesus? What are you, what are you trying to tell me to do? We live it out. He's going to start showing you stuff. Well, this is what I want you to do first. Let's try this. Start living this out. Start loving your neighbor. How do I do that? you got to be kidding me. i got to love my neighbor. <laughs> what does it mean? So say love your neighbor. I want, you to show, I want you to see the progression of questions. The question is, who is my neighbor? The question is, okay, that's my neighbor, but how do I love them? What is it that you're telling me to do? What is it that you're telling me to do conceptually? What is it that you're telling me to do specifically? It is a constant, continual partnership with the Holy Spirit. The error of the church is we teach the Christian that God doesn't speak. Therefore, if the Spirit is not speaking, the power of the church is neutered. Neutered. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's speaking, people. And this is why we can't get into the concepts of the gospel. This is why we have measure without fullness. I don't want measure. I want fullness. Fullness lies in knowing how to hear the Lord and how to follow him. That's why the logos doesn't take us home. We teach. I come from a high. I come from two high teaching churches. I understand high theology. I understand high teaching. You may not know it from time to time, you know, but I, hey, I, I get it. But what I've experienced is the high theology doesn't take us there. And if I've pressed into high theology and it isn't getting it done, well, then the problem's got to be on the other side. What is it that I'm missing here, Lord? What is it that I'm not understanding here, Lord? You're not understanding life in the spirit, Calvin. You're not understanding that I'm making this statement and, I'm, and, and that statement is to be figured out in relationship with me. It's always a partnership. Always. It was that way with Adam. It was a partnership. He was to partner with the Father. It's that way with Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's still a partnership. I don't leave you orphans. I give you the Spirit. It's, it's, the, the partnership's never, never ceased. It's never ceased. What has to happen is our hearts have to understand. Our hearts have to realize this is how it works. 
And if we, when we stay, it's going to, you guys, some of you guys are going to be like, wow, this is transformative. Because as soon as you start operating this faith of yours, according to how it's designed, Wonderland's going to open up to you. You're going to go, wow. I asked the Lord what I should do there. I asked him for something there. I felt like he told me to do this. I didn't know what I was doing. So I asked him, and this is what he showed me. Wow. Wonderful. I asked him what I should do. You know, this, how this whole thing, this whole thing on, on operates. But we as a people, we as a church are called to disciple nations. Train them and teach people into a lifestyle. That is the question. And here again, I promised the Lord. I was like, Lord, I don't want to talk about this, but I felt like he's telling me to do it now. Pray for Kevin right now. <laughs> we teach the Christian compartmentalized faith. We have failed and we are failing horribly to teach the believer how you take your life and integrate it. How you take your faith and integrate it into the world, into, the, into your everyday life. We fail at that. We fail at that. We give them principles and all this other stuff. So what we end up having is we have Christians on Sundays and we have heathens on Mondays. That's what we end up having. Can I get a witness? You're getting all quiet in here. Or we have Christians on Sunday and we're like, yeah, and then we go on Monday and we go, what am I supposed to do? I don't know how to do this. And, and so the, the, the idea is that we have to learn and press in and wrestle with the messiness of what this means as, as us living this as a lifestyle. And one of the things you have to live is if we're, live, if we're called to disciple the culture, we have to come at the culture in a way that's reset. We have to come at the question without compromising truth. We have to be able to come into the culture in a way that they can understand and not look at us as a bunch of weirdos flakes, judgmentals, whatever it is, you know, whatever the, the hypocrites. I don't have a problem with hypocrites. I'm like, yeah, we're all hypocrites. Come join the party, you know. <laughs> like, wait a minute, I'm not a hypocrite. Yes, you are. Come on, next slide. <laughs> Hypocrite is when you pretend to be something that, you know, we're pretending. We're pre we pretend everything's all right when it's not. That's a hypocrite, you know, or whatever, however you want to see it. Anyway, next slide. All right, I'm coming back on track. Get back on track. Get back on track. For if by one man's offense death reigned, how much more than those who receive, say this with me, the abundance of grace, the abundance of grace. and the gift, the gift of righteousness will reign through life. So here again, the idea here is that the concept of that we are created to reign. And here again, it's all connected to righteousness. And righteousness is always and mostly connected to grace. Grace. Grace is the enabling power of God. Say this with me. Grace, grace. is the enabling power of God. You say, I thought it was God's riches at Christ's expense. Yes. You, thought, you said, I thought it was God's, God's unmerited favor. Yes. But when we understand it, not in an abstract form, and we understand it in a living form, we understand that it is active and present power. It's not just some, well, we got, I got God's grace. God's grace is just around me. No, it's God's enabling power. It's God's enabling power. His grace, he gives you the power to do what he's telling you to do. He gives you the power to do what you cannot do. That's what grace is. It's the grace of God. It's not this kind of, you know, we tend to look at it as an abstract comp, con, you know. And what, when Paul, I'll give you a classic one. I love this one. When Paul says, when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, what he's not saying is my suffering, he says, my, my enabling power is sufficient for you. The present power that I've placed within you, the charismatic, dynamic power that I've placed in you is sufficient for all things. Grace is God's enabling power. God's enabling power is imparted by the active presence of the Spirit. In other words, you don't get grace out here. Grace comes into you. It is living. Grace is alive. Somebody said grace is a person. Yes, but grace is an active, present power. Grace activates righteousness. What is righteousness? Right to God. Everything begins and ends with this. Righteousness. 
our righteousness is meant to activate the kingdom. So when Romans says, the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, the kingdom of God is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if it tells us this is what the kingdom of God is, then we need to understand what these things are and why they are. So if we're called to be the king, we just go, yes, kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The question is, what does that mean? What does righteousness mean? Righteousness is right to God. That's what it means. And it's conceptually, too, it's, it plays out in our lives in two ways. It plays out in our salvation, where we're made right to God, and it plays out in our destiny, where we begin to live right to God. That's how it plays out. So righteousness unfolds generically like that. Galatians says, do not frustrate the grace of God. So in other words, let's, say, let's take this. The grace of God, when I receive Jesus, grace is imparted to me, and I am made righteous. And as soon as I am made righteous, I experience the kingdom of God. You understand that? So if the kingdom of God is in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, what are some ways that we can practically understand it? I give my life to Christ. Grace is imparted to me. I'm made right with God. Boom. I get to encounter the kingdom of God. When we do the things that are right to God, we activate and release the kingdom of God in and through our lives. This is how it works. But one of the simplest ways is to understand it. This is what I told first service this. When you worship the Lord, okay, you want to activate the kingdom? So we have up here, we have a band that's playing, we're worship, we're leading you into song, calling you into God's presence. When you enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, when you literally enter in to the worship, the worship, by the way, isn't meant to be observed, it's meant to enter into. So when we enter into the presence of God and we begin to worship him, the kingdom is released. That's why you feel because you are, you are activating yourself in righteousness. You are doing what is right before God, and the kingdom is being released. That's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing the reign and the dominion of God. You're like, wow, I feel so peaceful. I feel so powerful. I feel so at rest. I feel so wise. I feel so whatever it is you're experiencing in that moment. Righteousness activates the kingdom of God. And it is by grace that we receive righteousness, but we can frustrate the grace of God. Did you know that? You can frustrate the grace of God. You don't get the grace of God to leave you, but you can certainly frustrate him. So if grace, here's how we understand this. If we understand that grace is God's enabling power, then we understand that the Holy Spirit is trying to do something in our lives out of grace. And we can either partner with it or we can frustrate it. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by me, then Christ died in vain. The grace of God brings the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God brings the kingdom. But we need the grace of God, the power. Am I making sense? I, am I making Somebody help me out. Okay, yes? Am I making sense? Okay. We need the grace of God. Next slide. We frustrate the grace of God. How do we frustrate the grace of God? Next slide. <laughs> How do we frustrate the grace of God? By not changing the slot. No, I'm just joking. We frustrate the grace of God. How do we frustrate God's enabling power? By not understanding our value and worth. God can only work in your life to the degree that you understand that you are loved and accepted. When you do not understand you're loved and accepted, the grace of God, the empowerment God, the enabling power of God cannot operate. Another one is the failure to understand partnership. So here's what we have. We have different classes of Christians. We've got the one that walks around with her head down thinking, oh, I'm just a worm, no longer a man. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. My question to you would be, who said, who told you that? When the scripture references you, it does not reference you as a sinner saved by grace. It references you as an overcomer. It references you as a son and a daughter. It references you as an ambassador. It references you on a whole other level beyond, beyond a sinner saved by grace. 
And so the enabling power of God cannot take us further than us being saved, understanding the concept of I'm a sinner saved by grace. You no longer believe you're worthy of anything. You no longer believe you're acceptable of God's love. If God's in a good mood today, maybe he'll love me, maybe he won't. And the spirit is limited by your understanding or by your ability or inability to embrace that truth. So that frustrates the grace of God. God's like, Kevin, I want to bless you, but I can't get it in your head that you're a son. I can't get it in your heart that you're worthy, not based on you. You're worthy not about what you did last night. You're worthy because of what he did all on the cross and through the, through the tomb. So we frustrate the enabling power of God by not understanding our value and worth. You are loved, man. You are loved beyond measure. You are loved more than you could possibly know. He cares for you. He loves you. Another way we, is we fail to understand partnership. So then we have class one where we're just a bunch of worms, no longer a man, or we're sinners saved by grace, and we just, just be so grateful that God doesn't strike me dead right now. You know, I don't know how he even saved a wretch like me. I'm not really sure. I've got to keep my head down at all times. You know, we, there are people that literally operate like that, and churches operate that way too. We're harsh and judgmental one to the other. It is a disease within the body. I'm going to get to that. Failure to understand partnership. So here's the second group. Okay, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a servant, I'm whatever it is, you understand? And you're like, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. But you do it in your own strength and you fail to understand partnership. And so you're frustrating the power of God because the Lord wants to help you. The Lord doesn't even want to help you. He wants to enable it. But he won't enable it because you're too smart to let him enable it. In my world, I see it with churches all the time. Nobody backs up and actually asks, what does Jesus want here? I see it all the time. Plans, concepts, everything. And they present it and they go, okay, Lord, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do, Lord. You told us to do this. We're going to do it. And this is how we're going to do it. Okay, that's fine. You can present that. But does, does the Lord have any editing power over what you're doing? Does he have any say in the matter? Or are you only the one determining how this is going to work? That's the problem. We fail, and so what we end up doing is we frustrate the power of God by failing to understand the partnership, by failing to understand that it is in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And there again, we come back to this deep relationship with the Spirit of God. If we don't get that right, we're going to be completely missing it. He's speaking, Christian. He's not already spoke. He's speaking. His voice is active and present. Yeah. Righteousness, so it so gives us rights and access to our inheritance. Okay? We obtain faith through righteousness. In other words, what does faith look like? When we understand the enabling power of God, we receive righteousness. I understand that God loves me in spite of myself. I understand that God is for me even when I'm against myself. I understand that I am a son before him with inherited rights in the righteousness. The righteousness has rights. Now I have faith. I have faith that God is for me and not against me. Why? Because I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You see where faith comes from? If you don't understand righteousness and righteousness doesn't root in your heart, you're always like, well, I don't know. I don't know. And it diminishes faith. Righteousness produces faith. We receive like-minded faith through the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what it looks like. Righteousness produces, and say this with me, faith, faith. is believing and trusting in the promises of God. That's what faith is. Let me, let me define faith. Faith is also a belief to the point of action. But its root is belief in the promises of God. I believe in the promises of God, of God so much, I'm going to take action on that. That's what it looks like. Say this with me. Faith, faith. It has no feeling. doesn't matter. You can have faith. I can have faith. Say this with me. I can have faith, I can have faith. even without feeling. I can have faith, I can have faith. even with, even with negative, feeling. negative feeling. 
See, that's how the enemy intertwines all this stuff. And the Christians, again, it's, here's what, the devil's trying to always get you into guilt and condemnation. Oh, you don't have faith. Look how you're feeling. You can have faith and can, be, can have a completely negative feeling. You can have the storm, emotional storm of the century going on inside of you. And you can just go, this too shall pass. I choose to believe God. He's for me. He's not against me. This will not destroy me. I will overcome. You can choose to have faith even in the middle of that. Come on. Yes. Yes. When you detract faith from emotion, it sets you free. Faith is neutral. Faith has no feeling. Faith has no feeling. Fear has the feeling. Am I right? <laughs> Why don't I feel faith? Because faith has no feeling. Faith is a determined choice. You choose it. You stand in it. You set your heart into it. That's what faith is. Without feeling, without emotion. If you got feeling, hey, all the better. But you don't need to bank on that. So the enemy... <laughs> yeah, no, no, they're not the enemy. But what the, Jesus is trying to get you to understand is that you're loved, forgiven, and favored. What Satan's trying to do is get you to understand you're guilty and condemned. This is what he's trying to do. The guilt and the condemnation within the body of Christ is a disease that weakens the spirit and well weakens the body as it, as it is. It weakens the body of Christ. So when we have Christians constantly being put under guilt and constantly being put under shame and constantly being put under condemnation, and whether it's you, whether it's cult, whatever, whatever's putting you under that, it is weakening you. It is not enabling you. It is not empowering you. And not only does it weaken you individually, when that attitude exists within the church, it is a disease within the body and it weakens the body itself. The body of Christ is not stronger through condemnation. It's not stronger through every one of us alienating one ourselves and everyone self-examining. Oh, I see you got lint in your navel today, brother. I don't know if that's a God's will for you. It, that, that does not produce what God wants. The love of Christ compels us. Identity in Christ compels us. That does not. When we, can, when, we do, when we go into guilt and shame, whether you do it consciously, whether you do it subconsciously, or whether you allow guilt and shame in any manner to come upon you, you are partnering with the enemy. It is a partnership with darkness. It is not a partnership with light. And it doesn't mean you don't acknowledge it. Oh, dude, you really made a mistake there. And you can go, yeah, I did. But you know what? Jesus loves me anyway. You see the difference? I'm not denying that I didn't screw up. Come on. You know, come on. I'm not trying to hide it. What guilt and shame actually does is it produces separation. Adam and Eve, and it also produces a facade. And this is why Adam and Eve, they, they sinned. They hid it from the Father. They got into guilt and shame, and God's actually telling them, who told you that? And they're hiding it all from everybody. They're putting leaves on themselves, pretending like there's nothing wrong. It causes, when we, when we, feel, like God, we feel like under guilt and shame or condemnation from the Father, we will hide it from him. We won't give it to him. You'll put fig leaves on just like our ancestors did, Adam and Eve. And Jesus will be like, what's wrong with you? And you're going to be, what? What? I mean, what's that new attire you got wearing there, Kevin? Or that, what? Do this? I don't know. We pretend like nothing. He already knows. But when you understand you're loved and you're accepted and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, somewhere along the line, we've got to embrace these truths or we've got to like, figure out something else to do. Nothing separates me. I realize God's not finished with me yet. I don't run from him. I run to him. When he's pushing areas into my life and he's showing me where I'm off, my attitude isn't to justify myself. My attitude is to go, then Lord, help me. I know I'm wrong, but I can't help me. I can't change me. And you know what? Neither can you. You can't change you either. So be free, Christian. The only one who can, fear, the only one who can change you is the one who made you. And the only one, the one that he's going to be able to change you is when you're honest with him and you're invitational to him. He doesn't care. The Bible says he knows everything already. 
We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us all in righteousness. The Bible says he, is, he will cleanse you. He already knows everything. If our heart condemns us, he's greater than our heart. And he already knows. So why are you hiding it? We hide it because we think he's going to judge us. We hide it because we think it's guilt and shame. And he's going to give us a speech and he's going to give us a lecture. Did he give Peter a lecture? I'm sorry. Peter denied him and cussed him out. Cussed out. I don't blankety blank know who he is. Jesus on the seashore didn't give him a lecture. He just said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He didn't give him a speech. He didn't go, you know, hey, I just want to let you know. You denied me out there. He didn't give him that. We're loved and accepted. You guys believe that? All right, next slide. I'm almost done. Righteousness must root in the heart. Righteousness cannot be a concept within the mind. Righteousness cannot be something that's external. Righteousness is rooted in the heart. What we do as believers is we try to do the things that are right before God. Those things should be done. But without it being rooted from the heart, the right deeds do not produce the desired result. So righteousness has to be rooted in the heart. You have to know that you're loved. You have to believe that you're loved. You have to understand it at the deepest level. For with the heart, we believe under righteousness. You see that? We quote that for salvation, but it actually tells us where righteousness needs to root. Righteousness must root in the heart. Upright and righteous of heart, sin will not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, but you're under grace. What sin does in our life, or patterns of sin in our life, is it shows us areas of our life that are not under the gospel. That's what it does. When sin is revealed in your life, or patterns, habits, hang-ups, whatever it may be, areas of your life that are not producing, if there's barrenness in your life, what, again, whatever it may be, emptiness within your life, whatever it may be, that, that is to show you an area that is potentially out of line with your calling. That's what it's to do. It's never to condemn you. Oh, if you were righteous, Kevin, you would produce fruit there. If you were, you know, holy before God, you wouldn't have that problem. That's not the point. What it is, is sometimes it's an attack of the devil. Sometimes just the enemy just overruns you. You know, and you didn't do anything wrong. He just overruns you. But what happens is when there's a pattern, the key is pattern. The key isn't an event. The key is a pattern. When there's an ongoing pattern, there's something beyond you involved. Do you believe that? That's truth. When there, events aren't the markers. The patterns are the markers. So when we find ourselves reeling in patterns, we have to back up and ask the Father, why is this happening? What's going on here? What do I know? What do I not know? What am I doing? What am I not doing? What is it that I believe? This is a big one. Christians don't even ask this question. What is it that I'm believing that is enabling this? We, what, what lie do I believe that is allowing this to happen? Ask God that. Ask him one time. I dare you. Lord, what are, what are the lies that are rooted in my heart? Ask him. You know what he's going to show you? You don't have faith. He'll show me. He'll say, or you, you, you don't believe me. I'm like, what do you mean I don't believe you? And then he'll show you. Over here, you don't believe that I'm actually going to do this. You don't believe that I'm actually going to do this. You don't believe when I'm actually going to do this. It's a progression. But if you start asking God what's rooted in you, he's going to show you. And he's going to show you not to condemn you. This is, again, the key. He's going to show you to, not to condemn you, but to love you and to take you to the next level. Christ dwells in us, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You're complete in him. You don't need to be complete by anybody else. Your works don't make you complete. Your education doesn't make you complete. Nothing wrong with doing good things. Nothing wrong with being educated. Nothing wrong with any of that. But that does not make you complete. In Christ, you're complete. Present yourselves before the Father. Let each one of you present yourself. That's what it tells us. Present ourselves as members to righteousness, not to sin. So we, again, we see a partnership in here. We have to present ourselves unto what is right and stop presenting ourselves unto what is wrong. And then we have to figure that out. What does that look like? It's an ongoing interpersonal relationship. Next slide. Last slide, I think. 
Righteousness is a behavior empowered by the Spirit. The behavior activates the kingdom in the life of the believer. When we begin, so not only is righteousness a position, righteousness roots in our heart. And some of us, step one is drilling it into your heart that you are loved. Loved just because he loves you. Just because. You say, I don't understand that. Then ask him to show you what it means. What, and he'll, he'll start communicating it. The Bible tells us that it is his will that we know the love of the Father. It's his will, not gnosis, but it's experience. It is his will. So when you don't know that you're loved and you only believe it, but you don't know it, experience it, the Holy Spirit will show you that you're loved. Righteousness is a behavior that activates the kingdom. It's got to be rooted in our heart, and from the heart we go forth and do what God has called us to be and do. What's righteousness? What is right to God? I just shared with you a couple of them. Praying, uh, worship is right to God. Kingdom's activated. Radical five, this is the basis of our discipleship here. One of them, read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, uh, uh, financially give and live on mission. Those five things are what activates the kingdom in your life. When you read the word of God, you're activating the knowledge of God into you. When you're praying, you're activating a relationship with the Father or with the Spirit, right? When you commit and connect to church, you're activating the fellowship aspect of the kingdom is known here. There's just something good about it. It's indescribable. The church itself is a mystery. When you financially give, you begin to partner with the, with the supernatural. That's the design of the believer. When you begin to live on mission or begin to live out the things that God has called you to, reaching out to other people, doing, bringing the kingdom, again, you activate things in your life. These are the things that are right to God. Laying hands on the sick is good to God, is right before the Lord. These signs shall follow those that believe. They will lay hands on the sick. If we don't lay hands on the sick, we're not going to see the sign. It's part of wonderland, people. We got to lay hands on the sick. Say, I don't know what I'm doing. That's okay. You can even get, you can even experiment. Say, listen, I want to pray for you, you know, and I don't really know what I'm doing. So if you just work with me a little bit and you start laying hands on them and you start letting the Holy Spirit lead you, get around other people that are more experienced at it than you. And I would suggest you get around some people that are a little bit more successful at it than you. There's a lot of people that can pray for the sick, but there's a lot of, we want to see results. And so if the manner in which we're praying for the sick is not producing the results, what should we do? back up and ask what the problem is. But we failed to do that too. Lord, what are we doing wrong? You guys want a secret? When I stopped asking God to heal and I started declaring healing, healing went up exponentially. When I started understanding that the power to heal has been given to me in the anointing and I'm asking God to do something he's already done, everything shifted. Everything shifted. We don't ask. I tell that when we do teach fire stars, we teach people to lay hands on the sick. We don't ask the Lord for healing. We ask for healing anointing. I ask for increase in the healing anointing. We go forth. Healing is, healing is a series of breakthroughs. It's, I'm not going to get into that. But nonetheless, when we understand that, you know, the way that we, we have churches that pray for the sick, but our prayers for the sick is, oh, Lord, would you, could you, should you? If you're feeling good today, I just want to pray for Sister Susie here. And, you know, she loves you so much. And, you know, if you're in a good mood today, Jesus, and you're not too busy, maybe you could look down on Sister Susie's affliction. And maybe, just maybe, if, if by chance, if there's any chance at all, if there's any chance, Lord, <laughs> that's how we pray if we pray at all if we pray at all we don't pray like that we command healing into the body healing is it right healing is the children's bread it is our right of inheritance and it's not just in healing it is every right of inheritance that belongs to the believer it is yours by right you must forcibly take it well it just doesn't we expect it to come to us the kingdom the dominion of God is what suffers opposition Entering into the realm and the reign and the rule and the things that God has for you, you are going to be opposed in every way. 
You're going to be opposed spiritually. You're going to be opposed. There's going to be an, you're, you're even going to oppose yourself when you're trying to get into the spirit. You're not going to want it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, I don't feel like that. I don't, you know, you're going to oppose. But the Bible says the violent take it by force. We have to press in to what is ours. It is ours by right. Right. In other words, no one has a right to keep it from you. And we go, well, it just didn't happen, so maybe it wasn't God's will. It doesn't say that. So if the Bible doesn't say that, then we have to back up and recalculate what it is that we're doing. And we have to begin to ask the question, is it, my, is it the way that I'm seeing this? Is it the way that I'm doing this? Is there something I'm not aware of? We have to process into this stuff. It's just that I'm just telling you how it works. It's fullness and measure. Lots of people are content to be outside of, the, outside of the fullness of God. Lots. Very few Christians ever even taste fullness. Generations pass and generations come and generations go without ever touching the, or tasting, even tasting of the fullness of God. And you know what the Lord will let you do? He'll let, he'll let, he'll let generations come and he'll let generations go. He's not going to work any harder than you. If you don't want it, it won't, be, it won't be activated. You have to want it. So I try to tell you, he throws a pearl on the ground. He says, you interested in that? No, you can trample on it? Okay. And he'll walk over to the next person. He'll throw a pearl on the ground. He said, you interested in that? You can trample over it? Okay, nobody. You know, he, wants you to, he wants you to press into what is yours. Is there more? There's always more. We want, I want fullness. I don't know about you. I got one life. I got one go round, and that's it. And so do you. Righteousness hides us. I'm not going to get into that. But what I will say this off of Cain is everything Cain wanted was right. Cain wanted significance. Cain wanted position. Cain wanted to know that, it, that he was alive. Cain wanted everything that was good. God never corrected Cain on what he wanted. God corrected Cain on his approach, the way that Cain was going about it. Same thing with Peter. God never corrected Peter on what he wanted. What do we get? We've, we've given up everything for you. What do we get? He never, told, he never corrected him on what he wanted. He corrected him on his approach. He never corrected James and John on what they wanted. He corrected them on their approach. So you understand that? He's not going to correct you on what you want. Now, he may help you refine it, what it is that you want, but he's not going to push back on it. He pushes back on the process. He told James and John, there's a process. You want to sit at my right hand. I can't, I, that's not mine to give, but what I can do is what you're asking for is position in the kingdom. If you want position in the kingdom, that is a process. Are you able to drink of the cup? In other words, what you're asking for, you can have. But you're going to have to go through this process. It's the same thing with Cain. What Cain was asking for, the Lord said you can have. He said sin lies at the door and dire. He said if you will do what is right, if you will do it the way that I told you to, Cain, it'll be yours. Everything I want, everything you want is right. And it's just astounding that we have to understand the fact that he didn't correct Cain on his desire. We kill desire. Believe God, man. Believe God. He corrected Cain on his approach. He said, you're going about it the wrong way, Cain. If you readjust it, it's going to happen. If you won't, then sin desires, sin lies at the door and will consume you. Because man was not created for evil, we were created for good. So if you go this way, good's going to come and everything's going to go right. If you go this way, it's going to go bad and everything's going to go wrong. That was what he was doing. Last thing, right here, done. What activates the kingdom in our life? First of all, it's a rooted heart. Rooted righteousness within the heart. You've got to believe that you 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 know that you know that you know that you know and that no one can take it from you. No one can take it from you. You are loved of God. If you are in Jesus and you've given your heart to Christ, nothing can separate you. 
you're in him. And you've got to root that righteousness in your heart. If you're constantly living under fear, you're constantly living under, under condemnation, the kingdom will not come. The dominion of God, the rule of reign, will not unfold to you. When we understand it, creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons and daughters. Creation itself will respond, who? To sons and daughters. Creation doesn't respond to anybody else. It responds to sons and daughters. That's you and me. So how do we get creation to respond? Well, that's a great question. First of all, we've got to understand we're sons and daughters. And then we've got to go, what does that mean, Lord? What does it mean? <laughs> he loves it. If you have little kids, don't you love it when they ask you questions? You love it. What does that mean? What is that? You know? A rooted heart, righteousness, sons and daughters. Understanding and engaging your authority. Knowing who you are and standing in who you are. Knowing that this, you do not have to have it this way. I'm a son, I'm a daughter, these are the promises, this is what God has said, it's not going any other way. It's not. Circumstances may tell you something, but truth tells you something completely different. Circumstances and truth are not the same thing. Or I would put it this way, reality and truth are not the same thing. Your reality can, your reality can testify, but I got news for you, so is the word of God. Reality is telling you something, but what is the truth telling you? That's the difference. Whose report will you believe? Truth says you can take the land. Reality says there's no way. No way. And a generation wasted away because they chose reality over truth. Ooh. You mean God is willing to let a generation waste away if they're going to embrace reality over truth? Absolutely. They did not enter in. They did not inherit what was rightfully theirs because they chose their reality over what God said. I got news for you. Joshua and Caleb entered in, didn't they? He, God waited. He said, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, they believe me. They are choosing truth over reality. We can take the land because God said we could. I don't know any more than that other than the fact that he said he could, and that's okay for me. So we got to make up our minds. We have to train a generation of believers to live by truth and live by promise, live by understanding who you are and live by who you are, what your rights are as a believer. God has no problem giving you inherited rights. You have them. You have to understand who you are and you have to understand you're an authority. The devil's not an authority in your life. I got news for you. I don't care what room you're in, what atmosphere you're in. If there's a believer in the room, the spiritual authority rests with the believer. No one in the room has spiritual authority when there's one Christian present. The government of heaven will rest with one believer. We are in authority. We have to understand it. We have to engage it. Not going to happen. Moving into your purpose and destiny. What is God calling you to? What are you supposed to do? And begin to move it out. So it's an issue of here, and it's an issue of here, and then it's an issue of here. Getting it in your heart, taking your rightful stand, and taking your rightful place, and forcefully moving into who God has called you to be. And being willing to adjust and move along the way. He's going to refine you. You're not going to get the whole picture right out of the gate. It's just how he works. You believe me? Yes. I speak truth to you. <laughs> All right. Ah, I love you guys. I love you guys. I love you guys. I bless you. Amen. I pray this blesses you. I pray this roots in your heart. I pray that everything Jesus died to bring to you is not shadowed from you, is not kept from you, is not veiled from you. I pray that neither, no, there's no one in creation. If I or an angel of light preached to you any other gospel other than what you have heard, then let them be accursed, Paul said. Is the gospel of the kingdom, is the gospel of the rule and reign of Christ, is the righteous positioning of the people of God into the purposes of God, for the glory of God.
Father, we just glorify you. You are good. We release out all that you said. Holy Spirit, I just release you, even what is not understood, or maybe what I said was a little bit confusing, that you just clarify all things. You're the teacher. We just bless you. I bless these people this morning. I honor you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. Love you. God bless. All right. We got Discover Elevate. We're going to start uh, right after. So if you're new to the church and you want to find out anything about us, we're going to do a reception in the middle, in the small room right there.